0: My name name's Isabelle Solier, and welcome to The Conversation Podcast. I'm speaking with food critic Ruth Reichel, who's in Australia for the Melbourne Writers Festival, where she'll be discussing her first novel, Delicious, and sharing tips on the art of food writing and restaurant criticism. Ruth, welcome. Let me start by asking you about the significance of food in our lives. What's your response when people say, it's just food? Why does food matter?
1: Oh, that's such a big question. The quickest way to answer this is, when I went for for a tour through San Quentin Prison, they told me that they made sure that in this high-security prison they had really good food, because all riots in prisons started in the cafeteria. And the truth is that food is the primary concern of people. you need food and water to exist. And it drives just about everything else in our lives. It drives our social relations. It drives our politics. It drives the way we connect to each other. Um, It drives um, the environment. And um, if you don't care about food, you ultimately really don't care about life. You cannot care about flavor which would be a shame because you would be denying yourself a great pleasure. But to not care about food, to not think about food, to not think about what it means today that half the world has too much to eat and the other half doesn't have enough to eat is to really not understand the major problems of the world. And. Down the road, I mean, as we're speaking, I mean, we're in, like, one of the most horrific times that I can think of, certainly in my lifetime. I mean, there are horrible things happening all over the world. I mean, the Middle East is exploding. I mean, America at the moment is having these race problems. But that's nothing compared to the coming issues we're going to have with water. You know, if you don't think about those things, you're really denying um, what's really important in life.
0: I think part of the critique that's often directed at food culture today is that it epitomises consumerism. But in the research I did with amateur foodies for my book, Food and the Self, I found that producing food, in terms of cooking it, was more important to them and held a higher value for them than simply consuming food in restaurants. I'd like to know what your thoughts are on this and if you think there's been a return to cooking and production in food culture as opposed to more of an obsession with restaurants and consumption in the 80s? Well, I think you divide
1: this in in two ways. If you think about producing food, is there a return to gardening? Yes. Is there a return to young people being interested in farming, which, I mean, we were losing farmers at an incredible rate. Now we have a generation of smart young people who are interested in farming again. That's all to the good. Are we losing cooking? Sadly, we are. You know, I, I'm kind of shocked at how little knowledge young people have about how to produce food. And I feel like one of the real things that we need to do, be doing is getting people back into the kitchen, getting people comfortable with, I mean, cooking is easy. And, and it, is, it is my belief that it is man's natural activity. You know, it's like it, what makes us human. We cook, they don't. Cooking is also the most generous impulse. I mean, people cook as a f- form of expression of love. I mean, it's 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 a generosity to want to feed people. And I am really hoping for a time when this sort of foodie obsession with running to the newest restaurant will come around to an obsession with feeding people. And one of the reasons I stopped being a restaurant critic was that I was increasingly disturbed by the amount of private time people were spending in public spaces. Mm -hmm. It's a very different thing to meet people in a restaurant to say meet me in a restaurant for a meal than to say come to my house for dinner. And because when you say come to my house for dinner you're not just saying I'm gonna cook for you you're sharing your life, you're opening yourself up, you're, you're becoming vulnerable. You know, people come to your house, and they see if you're messy, if you have good taste, if your children have manners, if your animals are disciplined. It's a kind of vulnerability that we are no longer ready to risk. So I'm hoping for people to start cooking again for so many reasons more than just, it's a wonderful thing to know how to cook. It's it's very pleasurable thing. There's nothing nicer than having people around your table. There's nothing um, more comforting than knowing that you know how to feed your family on very little money, which you need to know how to cook to do. But it's bigger than that. I mean, that the whole social contract that happens around a table is very different in a restaurant than it is um, in a home.
0: One of the main changes in the sphere of restaurant reviewing in recent times has been the emergence of online amateur food criticism, and in particular, food bloggers. How do you view amateur restaurant bloggers?
1: You know, there there are many ways of doing a restaurant review. Restaurant criticism is no different than any other kind of criticism. The primary purpose of a good critic is to enhance the experience for the reader. So if you read a really good critique and you go to a museum, you see that art in a different way. And with restaurant criticism, with a really good critique, you go to that restaurant prepared to experience that food in a richer way. You you've learned something about, you know, where this food comes from, where the chef comes from, where it fits into the history of restaurants. The kind of blogging reviews that happen are essentially consumer reports. They're, go spend your money here or don't spend your money there. And what I like about them is that as a consumer of those kind of critiques, you need to learn to use your own judgment. Um, You need to be able to triangulate between this is probably a friend of the chef, this is his mother, this is a disgruntled person who is probably a jerk. Um, you, know, you need to like read them and bring your own intelligence to it. And the other side of it is, it has made the professional critics better. I mean, I think, certainly in the United States right now, we have the best restaurant critics we've ever had. I mean, they are um, the most knowledgeable, the best writers, the most interesting group of restaurant critics we've ever had, because they can't, it, Restaurant critics used to be able to just be consumer report. I mean, if you look at Craig Claiborne, who essentially invented restaurant criticism in the United States, all he was really doing was saying, spend your money here, don't spend your money there. And if you look at the evolution of it, and you look at, say, Jonathan Gold, who was the only American ever to win a Pulitzer for restaurant criticism, I mean, what he brings to it is so incredible. I mean, he's comparing food to music. He's putting it in context. He's eaten all, you know, if he writes about a taco, it means he's eaten every taco in LA and he can compare them. With
0: when you were working as a restaurant critic, especially at the New York Times, you were often described, in terms of the cliché, as having the power to make or break a restaurant. How did you handle this kind of power and responsibility as a critic? What kind of ethics do you think structured your reviewing? If you believe that criticism is important, Um, And that's,
1: that's a big if. But if you believe it's important, it's important to be fair. And being fair means saying something's bad when it's bad. Although always acknowledging that, you know, basically what you're talking about is something that's going on in your mouth. I mean, it's like, it's your idea of bad. But what I kept a photograph of a young couple who only got to go out once a year and they saved their money all year for a really great meal and they went out on their anniversary and I imagined that I had written a very nice review of a place that wasn't very good and that they went and spent their money at this restaurant and were very disappointed and they were my reader and I my responsibility was to them not to the restaurant I mean they were the people who were paying my salary and every time I was tempted to pull my punches, I'd look at that photograph and think they're going to be disappointed. And it's hard to do. I mean, you don't want to, you know, if you're a normal human being, your inclination is not to be mean and close restaurants and put people out of work. On the other hand, that couple, um, it's not fair to them if you're saying this restaurant is good, and it, it just isn't.
0: In your time as a restaurant critic for the New York Times, you also decided to wear disguises when visiting restaurants so that you wouldn't be recognised and given preferential treatment. Some of your identities included Molly, a frumpy blonde, and Brenda, a bohemian redhead. How were your various characters treated differently, and what do you think it revealed about prejudice towards different kinds of people in society? Well, I mean, certainly
1: Betty, my frumpy little old lady, was treated like dirt in every restaurant she went to. But the other thing that it taught me was that we're basically in control of how the world perceives us. Betty was a little old lady, but so was my mother, who I also turned myself into. And she knew that if you're going to go to an expensive restaurant, you dress up. You demand respect. And part of, for me, I mean, it was fascinating because I'd never really cared about clothing or what I looked like and I didn't really feel like I was in control of it, but doing all these disguises, it was so odd because I would put these things on and inside I'm still me, but what happens is people respond to what they're seeing and suddenly I would respond to their response and so suddenly I would be wild Brenda who was lovely i mean she's just the loveliest person i mean my family liked Brenda better than they liked me she was so nice i mean she nothing ever bothered her i mean she was the ultimate you catch more flies with honey than with vinegar and i realized that we are in control of how we get treated and you know if you if you go to a fancy restaurant in shabby clothes they don't want to see you in that front seat. I mean, restaurants are a kind of theater. And to me, you know, it's a contract with the restaurant. If you're going out for a, to spend a lot of money in a fancy restaurant, their deal with you is they'll take your major money, and in return, they will give you the illusion, if only for a few hours, that you are a privileged person. But if you want that experience, you have to dress the part.
0: And so, you know, it's the, the contract goes a little bit both ways. And did your experience of playing those different characters influence you when you were writing your new novel, Delicious? Absolutely. I mean, when I decided I wanted to write fiction,
1: well, actually, an editor came to me and said, you should write fiction. And I said, well, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm I'm a memoirist. I'm not sure I can write fiction." And she said, Oh, come on, Ruth. What do you think you were doing when you wore all those disguises? She said, You weren't you weren't writing fiction, but you were living fiction. All you have to do is figure out what character you want to be, and instead of, like, being her, put her on the page. And she said, Who do you want to be? And I said, I want to be 21. <laughs> and so Billy is 21. <laughs>
0: You said that your Jewish identity is very important to you. How has that shaped your relationship with food?
1: My mother was the antithesis of a Jewish cook. The sort of stereotype of a Jewish cook is someone who cooks things to death. My mother barely cooked things. I mean, she would put a turkey in the oven, take it out 10 minutes later and tell you it was (laughs) cooked. (laughs) And I did not grow up on classic Jewish food and, in fact, don't have much taste for it. I mean, I grew up in a very sort of Jewish intellectual household that maybe because my parents were Jews, I mean, almost deliberately disdained food. They were like, food isn't important to us at all. We don't care. And so in response to their not caring, I care enormously. It's interesting because my I certainly don't come from any religious background, but um, my parents were very strongly cultural New York Jews. I realize now, because so many of my friends are not Jewish, what a small world. I mean, they, you know, I grew up in publishing and my parents' friends were um, pretty much all Jews. I mean it's um, it, it, it's odd to think about, because none of them were religious, but it was and, you know, I went to public school in Greenwich Village and um, the schools were empty on the Jewish holidays.
0: The contemporary obsession with food in popular culture and everyday life comes at a time when rates of obesity in the US and Australia are extremely high, with 25% of adults in Australia and 35% of adults in the US currently obese and projected to rise further. What role, if any, do you think the food media has to play in educating people, not only about the pleasures of food, but also about health and nutrition?
1: My own bias on this is less with the notion of health and nutrition and more with the notion of get rid of industrial foods. I mean, I think it's industrial food that is. I mean, I I don't think that people need to think of food as medicine to be healthy. But I do think that clearly we have run an experiment on two generations now where we've allowed food to be industrialized and constantly refined to become worse and worse and worse and it's very clear that I don't know if it's the antibiotics but you have to think about the antibiotics that are used in the meats in the United States you know eighty percent of the antibiotics in the United States are used on perfectly healthy animals and it's basically to fatten them up well is that fattening us up? The jury is out on that. Is the fact that people think it's perfectly normal to drink 64 ounces of soft drinks. You know, is the fact that, that kids get these huge empty calories in soft drinks, that they're eating, you know, cereal that is filled with chemicals, um, that we allow children to be advertised to who are sitting ducks. I mean, you know, they, the kids are plunked in front of the television and there are these ads about these terrible foods are being streamed at them constantly. They have no way of filtering them at all. Eating, we know, is learned behavior. I mean, Japanese children do not grow up liking rice and fish because they have a natural inclination. They grow up because that's what they're fed, and children learn to like what they're fed. And so my um, real bias on this is I wish we had less sort of touchy-feely media about food and more hard-hitting, this is a political issue. Um, we need the government to step in on this. Um, the food lobby is enormous in the United States. And we need to activate people because it, it is, these things are only going to change when people get up on their two feet and start demanding that the government institute laws about what we're allowed to be fed what children are permitted to watch i mean we really need to take control of
0: this so you think the industrialized food system is the key
1: i think so i don't think it matters how much fat and egg and eggs and butter you eat if you're eating real food but i think we really and we in the media i think it is really important for us to just keep going over this again and again and again and making things transparent. You know, we've done a very good job in the United States of making CAFOs, um, confined animal facility. Ten years ago, nobody knew that animals were being tortured in animal factories. Mm -hmm. People know that now. Um, You know, if you choose to eat industrially raised pigs and chickens, at least you know it. If you're eating battery eggs, you know that those animals have miserable lives. But we really need to just keep pushing for transparency in everything.
0: Do you think the shift towards local food is important as part of that?
1: I think, I think it's very important. I mean, I think that, you know, for one thing, keeping money inside the community is very important. Um, the more that we globalise food and, you know, make it cheaper for People to buy food from China than food from the farmer next door. The more we are um, making our own environments worse places. I mean, we really need—we need farmers. We need—we need food to be local. The safest way to eat is to know the people who raised your food. You know, if you—if—I if, mean, one of the big problems we're finding with these like huge, you know, food epidemics of foodborne illnesses is it's very hard to trace you know what what sickened these people where did these animals come from where did that cantaloupe come from that made people sick if you're buying you know somebody in your family gets sick and you bought food from the farmer next door it's very easy to trace
0: as you spoke about earlier there's more than 800 million people in the world who don't have enough food to eat and it's not just a problem confined to the developing world but also one on our doorstep with five percent of households in Australia and fifteen percent of households in the United States experiencing food insecurity, I think it's more than that in the states. One in five children in the United States goes to bed hungry. One in five. What do you see as ways of addressing this? It's
1: such a big problem, um, and we all know that you know it's largely a problem of, in the third world. it's largely a problem of distribution. It's not that there's not enough food um, in Western culture. Um, you know, one of one of the ways you address it is people need to learn to cook again. You know, I mean, if you know how to cook, it's easy to live on things like rice and beans, which are very cheap, and if you know how to balance protein. If you think that you need meat at every meal, um, you create a system of scarcity. So part of it is um, teaching people to eat. Part of it is waste is an enormous issue, and not just on the macro level, but within households. I mean, the amount of food that get, I mean, there are estimates that, you know, 50 percent of the food in the United States gets essentially wasted. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: And um, so, you know, part of it is we need to, again, you know, teach people to cook. So, I mean, that's on a household level, people just throwing things out. Um, You know, one of the things that's really encouraging is that chefs, you know, all over the world are starting to address these issues. When I first started reviewing restaurants, um, there were no second harvests, no food pantry. I mean, people now, you know, there are people who go and collect food from restaurants for redistribution. But um, again, um, I, I can't speak to Australia, but... The biggest issue in the United States is taxation policy. It's like, we tax the wrong things. So um, meat is subsidized, sugar is subsidized, vegetables are not subsidized. If you change that and you started subsidizing healthy food and you, st- I mean, there's a reason why when you go to McDonald's it is cheap to buy a hamburger and expensive to buy a salad. And that's because of our tax policy. So, you know, so much of this needs to be changed at a government level. I mean, it's like, it's very hard for individual people to do anything other than lobby the government.